Well, I thought about getting up here at this point in time and saying, no sermon today. April Fool's. But I thought, you know, to build people's hopes to such euphoria and then knock the props out from under them would just not be right. You can't mess with people's emotions quite like that. Do you know the last time that Easter fell on April Fool's Day was 1956? I was one year old, so I have never preached a sermon on April Fool's Day. And yet, there are many in our culture who would find today to be the most appropriate day for celebrating what they believe is so foolish. Every time I stand by an open grave, this question hauntingly creeps back into my mind and whispers, do you really believe that Jesus came back from the dead? I know where the question originates. After all, believing in the resurrection of Christ does defy human logic. Uh, It'd have to be a miracle. And miracles are, well, miracles. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines miracle as an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. Well, the resurrection is the most extraordinary event, if indeed it happened. As we wind up this series behind the scene, I want us to feel a sense of confidence so that the next time we stand by an open grave, we can answer that nagging question with the confident, absolutely, I believe that Jesus came back from the dead. You see, if not for that miracle of miracles, all hope dies in the cemetery. Well, you say, are are the miracles really all that important? I mean, can't I just believe in God that he exists or, or that Jesus was a good man without believing in the miraculous? Well, Thomas Jefferson believed that. Maybe you have seen his Bible at the Smithsonian Institute. I've seen it a couple times. It's oftentimes called the Jefferson Bible, or he called it the life and morals of Jesus of of Nazareth. Using a razor and glue, he finished it in 1820. He cut out all of the miracles and the supernaturals of Scripture, leaving only the moral teachings of Jesus, for which he had great respect. But Thomas Jefferson's New Testament ends with these words, or the Gospels end with these words. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. End of story. That's all she wrote. Jefferson and many others like him cannot rationalize or resolve the issue of miracles. But here's the question I want to ask. Can we logically and rationally embrace the teachings of Jesus and walk away from the miraculous? I I want us to take some time this morning just to take a look at at the power of miracles and, and what they really mean when it comes to the life of Christ. You see, if there is a God who created everything, established the laws of nature himself, and who is desirous of a relationship with us, his creation, then doing miracles would be no problem. As a matter of fact, folks, I have a problem with a God who can't do miracles. How is a God like that any different from an ordinary average guy like me who can't do miracles? You see, according to the scripture, God used miracles to guarantee or to validate his communication with us as being real. 
Miracles are both the official and the authoritative seal or stamp of God. Now try proving who you are without some form of verification. To cash a check, you have to prove who you are. To board an airliner, you need to have a valid ticket and a recognized form of government ID. Do you have your new Indiana Secure ID driver's license yet? You know, that's coming. Now, I'm really grateful for our state in trying to keep us safe and to protect us when we travel. But in order to meet the requirements for that driver's license, this is what I had to provide. My current Indiana driver's license, my original Social Security card. Do you even know where that is? My passport, my voter registration card, a current utility bill with my address on it, and the blood of my firstborn child to identify who I am. Okay, not the blood of my firstborn child, but everything else. And yet, and yet for all of that, the picture on my license still looks like somebody I wouldn't want on an airplane. Now, you try stepping foot into another country without your U.S. passport and see how far you get. This document that is supported and backed and created by our government that is sealed in certain ways to make sure that it is genuine. You see, you just can't go anywhere without verification to prevent counterfeiting of our $100 bill and, and other bills. Each bill contains a serial number. Red and blue security fibers dispersed throughout the unique paper fabric blend. A watermark. Color-shifting ink. A security thread that looks different under ultraviolet light. And a security ribbon. You see, we want to know that our money is genuine. So how does God convince us that his word is genuine to us? How does God validate his communication with humanity? You see, anybody can say anything. <laughs> Just look at social media and you can know that's true. But how do we know something is genuine unless it's verifiable? And how would God verify a message coming from him? When God chose to reveal himself, it was occasionally accompanied by a suspension of the laws of nature, an extraordinary moment of God's intervention, or in other words, a miracle. Without a miracle, how do we differentiate the true God from all the imposters? I mean, only the true God can do something supernatural. But if there's nothing that happens that's supernatural, then we're lost among all the imposters. In the life of Jesus, miracles credited to him were to validate his claim to be God in the flesh, the Son of God. Again, anyone can profess to be a savior. Anyone can profess to be the incarnation of God in this world. But proving that, well, that's something else. His miracles were not some form of entertainment, folks. Jesus never performed to the crowd to impress the masses or the world leaders. His miracles validated who he was and why he came. Now, have you, have you noticed the pattern? In the first two miracles, in his first two miracles, turning water into wine at a wedding feast and healing the nobleman's son, 
who was very near death. Jesus bridged the extremes of life. The first was a joyous occasion. The second was a tragic occasion. The first was at the creation of a home. The second was during a crisis in a home. The first added gladness to a family. The second removed sadness from a family. Jesus didn't perform these miracles merely to be nice or accommodating. He demonstrated that he is Lord of life from both extremes and everything in the middle. There is nothing you will go through but what he can't be there for you. And did you notice during his earthly life and ministry that the miracles build in significance and power? From turning water into wine... To healing illnesses, withered hand, blind eyes, paralyzed limbs, and terminal leprosy. From the surprising catch of fish to feeding 5,000 with a handful of fish and loaves of bread. From walking on the water to calming the sea. Even the three times that he raised the dead, there is a progression of power. Now, don't miss this, folks. The first resurrection was moments after after the girl had died. The second resurrection was hours after the young man had died. And the third resurrection, the most dramatic of all his miracles, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead took place four days after he had died. Oh, decay was already hard at work on Lazarus when Jesus reversed the whole process. His first miracle of water into wine was for friends. His last miracle was for an enemy when he restored Malchus' severed ear. The miracles tell the story of his compassion and his greatness. Because you see, only God can heal the sick with a touch, calm the storms with the word, feed thousands with a snack, and raise the dead with a command. The miracles validate God's message to us and God's presence with us in Jesus Christ. Luke writes in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. I I think we could even go so far as to say this morning that if miracles don't exist, then a loving relational God doesn't exist. And if miracles don't exist then Jesus is reduced to a charlatan, a man without integrity, an imposter who is guilty of leading millions of people astray for the last 2,000 years because if he couldn't perform miracles, then he is a mere man who cannot be trusted to get us home or to forgive our sins or do any of the things that he promised he could do for us. I'm telling you this morning, there is a lot riding on what we conclude about miracles. Well, yeah, you say, but where is God today when it comes to intervening miraculously? What about the school shootings and the terrorist attacks? Where was God when my child was born with disabilitating uh, issues? Or my father died when he was too young in an accident? Or my mom suffers with Alzheimer's and no longer knows where I am, who I am, and what's going on in my life? Where's God in those times? Where was the miraculous power of God when I lost my job or when I had to file bankruptcy or my spouse abandoned me or my child got addicted to drugs? I get it. Every family is visited by grief and sorrow at some point. My family's grief may be different from your family's grief, but we all grieve. That's life in a broken world. 
You see, we look at the miracles of Jesus and forget. We forget that there were thousands of people that lived in that area that were not healed, who were not restored, who were not raised back to life. And the gospel narrative, for the most part, is limited to a very small stretch of land in and around that small country of Judea. Do, do, do you not realize that there was no one in Egypt or all of Africa or Asia or Europe during the earthly ministry of Jesus that saw a miracle or was the recipient of a miracle of his? The miracles weren't about people being healed. The miracles weren't about intervening to spare people suffering. The miracles were to prove that nothing was impossible for Jesus, thus validating him as God in the flesh and ultimately giving us hope for life. So where is God when I hurt? Where he's always been. He's with you in the pain. God probably won't remove your valley. But he will walk with you through the valley and sometimes carry you through your valley. So, you're saying God doesn't do miracles anymore? I didn't say that. I don't believe that. We have no authority to limit the intervening power of God. What's more, we often overlook the way God most often works. I've never witnessed a miracle, folks, like what we read about in Scripture. I've never seen restore, uh, eyes that were blind restored at just the touch of a hand or the click of a finger or a, a simple word. But I have seen God at work providentially. Remember, providence is more than just a city in Rhode Island. The providence of God is when he works through the normal channels of life to bring about a desired result for us. It's, it's through the common, ordinary, day-in, day-out things that God works in mighty ways. What we at sometimes consider to be coincidence is anything but. It's a God incident where God is working, bringing things together. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come to me and say, you know, I went to the doctor for something really simple, and in the process of dealing with that, they discovered I had a life-threatening condition. I, I, I should have kept track through the years of all the times that's happened. I think that's God at work. There's hardly a day goes by that you don't see the providence of God at work if you will look for it. It's when all these seemingly random things in life converge at a moment to bring us to the point where God wants us to be. That is God providentially working. It may not be miraculous in the suspension of the laws of nature, but it's no less God at work. You want a good example of this? Go home this afternoon and read the book of Esther. The name of God does not appear in the book of Esther. And yet his fingerprint is on every verse, on every page, at every moment. And you will see the providence of God bring all these pieces together to save the Israelites again. It's an awesome story. Well, you say, in the Bible, miracles happened all the time, didn't they? Oh, no, a closer look reveals that's not accurate. By one count, <clears throat> there are 124 miracles recorded in the Bible. Now, 44, <clears throat> excuse me, 44 of those took place in the life of Jesus and the early days of the church. So, if we just take that period between Abraham and the birth of Christ, that 2,100-year 
period. We have 77 miracles. Now, approximately 27 of those took place during the 40 years that Moses was leading the Israelites out of the bondage of Egypt and into the Promised Land. So that leaves us with 50 miracles over 2,060 years, or approximately one miracle every 41 years. And they weren't spaced out evenly. So there were times when generations came and went and never witnessed a miracle of God. And again, I tell you, this is all limited to that small strip of land in Scripture that we know as Israel or Judea. And a handful of miracles, <clears throat> just a handful in Scripture, happened to create an indelible mark on history. The parting of the Red Sea was still viewed by all by the people of the city of Jericho 40 years after it happened. Now remember, Jericho is filled with not Jewish people, but Canaanite people. And when the Israelites are camped on the banks of the Jordan River, ready to go in 40 years later and conquer the city of Jericho, the people remember the parting of the Red Sea. They were enemies, and they are trembling at the thought of what happened 40 years ago. How many of you remember anything that happened in the Soviet Union in 1978 that's still troubling you? I haven't tried to look up anything that happened in the Soviet Union in 1978 that, that would be, I couldn't find anything. I'm telling you, this was one of those moments in history that left an indelible mark. That moment at the Red Sea was simply incredible. Here's these newly released Hebrew slaves, and they find themselves in a hopeless situation. They are trapped they are hemmed in by mountains on either side, the Red Sea behind them, and a fierce Egyptian army bearing down on them from the front. In the midst of their utter fear and deep disappointment in what God had done, God does the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the miraculous. The waters of the sea part. And in the most unlikely turn of events, God provides an escape. The Hebrew people scurried across the, between the walls of water, with the Egyptians in hot pursuit. And just as the last Hebrew slave makes it out onto the shore of the other side, the walls of water collapse, burying the Egyptian army forever. Separating the Israelites from the bondage of their slavery. Giving them a new life, the promise of a new home, and a hope for the future. But I'm here to tell you this morning that the Red Sea miracle only is a shadow of what was to come at the climactic moment of the life of Christ. On the crest of Golgotha, the crucified Jesus was hemmed in on two sides by common criminals and a Roman guard behind. And bearing down on him was the penalty of our sin. And when Jesus died, his followers lost all hope. In the midst of their utter fear and disappointment, God did something unthinkable. God did the miraculous. The walls of death collapsed and gave way to a risen Lord and we, former slaves to sin, have been given a new life, the promise of a new home, and hope for the future. What we celebrate today is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the miracle of miracles. The Vietnam Memorial <clears throat> is striking for its simplicity. Etched in black granite walls are the names of 58,175 Americans who either died in that war or are still missing in action. Since its opening in 1982, the Stark Monument has stirred deep emotions. Now, I've been to the wall more than once. 
And I have watched people quietly stand before certain names and wipe away tears. I've watched others as they've traced the names with their fingers on the wall. I've seen a couple veterans share a story, point to their comrade whose name is on the wall. But for 14 Vietnam veterans, a visit to the memorial must be especially poignant, for they can walk up to the long ebony wall and find their own names carved there. Because of a data coding error, each of them was incorrectly listed as having been killed in action. When the world looks at the wall, they presume these guys are dead, but they are very much alive. When the world looks at Jesus, they presume he's dead, but I know he is very much alive. Yes, you say, but I, I would still like to see something miraculous with my own eyes. You know who else said that, don't you? Or something like that. It, it, it was Thomas. Now, I talked about Thomas back in January when we were going through the Room for Doubt series. It's true. Thomas had serious doubts about the resurrection because he couldn't believe without seeing. And, and get this. Have you ever stopped thinking about this? Prior to this moment, Thomas had witnessed more than 30, at least what we have recorded, more than 30 miracles of Jesus. And yet when it came to this, he was unwilling. This is different, he's saying. A dead guy can't do miracles. I will not believe until I see it with my own eyes. You see, I think it's because Thomas was so stubborn in this matter that the name Thomas has been abused and misused for the last 2,000 years. Call me sensitive, but I've got evidence. Okay, I've got evidence. When Mother Goose needs a villain, who does she choose? It's Tom Tom, the Piper's son, that stole that pig and took off. Little Tommy Tucker went to bed without his supper, and little Tommy Lynn's the one that threw the cat in. Little Johnny Stout's the one that pulled him out. You see, Mother Goose finds her villain in Tom. That's not all. That's not all. The, the male domestic turkey, one of the dumbest of all of God's creation, <laughs> is named Tom. When you've got an old, mean, back alley cat, what do you call him? When you've got a little girl that's not acting like a little girl, what do you call her? That's exactly right. Mischievous activity is called Tom foolery. And when you've got a guy looking in windows he ought not to be looking in, what do you call him? A peeping Tom, yeah. How come not a peeping George or a peeping Harry or somebody like that? Does this bother you as much as it bothers me? <laughs> I doubt it. <clears throat> Let's be fair. Many of the Bible heroes had black marks on their character. Noah got drunk after the flood, but we don't remember his as Noah the drunkard. Abraham lied. Moses killed an Egyptian. David committed adultery. Peter denied knowing Jesus. Paul persecuted the church. But let Thomas just once doubt that which is unbelievable. And forever he is doubting Thomas. You see, I think there's some abuse there. Well, a week later when Thomas does meet the risen Lord, falls to his knees in total commitment. My Lord and my God. It is the boldest statement in Scripture about Jesus. I, I mean, folks, you just can't say it better than that. 
But do you know what Jesus said in response to that? In John chapter 20, verse 29, it says, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have yet not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is saying, Of course you believe, Thomas. You've just seen me with your own eyes. It's easy to believe when you can see. But for those who believe without seeing, I have even greater blessings in store. That's us. John 20 John goes on to say this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Would I like to see a miracle? Sure, who wouldn't? Do I need to see a miracle to believe? I don't. You see, when I study the overwhelming historical evidence and I read the reliable eyewitness accounts, I'm convinced. When I grasp that the apostles, even Thomas, died for their convictions that the resurrection is true. When I realize that I cannot find a better answer to the problem of sin or the homesickness of my longing soul or the greater hope to sustain me through life's toughest moments, I'm convinced. And when I see the lives of broken people who have been changed and transformed by the message of Jesus Christ 2,000 years later. I am convinced. I don't need to look any farther. I can say, my Lord and my God, without hearing his voice or seeing his face or touching his scars. How about you? I'm also convinced that if you will take an honest, thorough look at the evidence, you may come to the same conclusion. You see, the God who created the universe and everything in it longs to know you and longs for you to know him. And he has spared no expense at making that possible. There is just one thing that God cannot do. He cannot make the choice for you. Only you can choose to trust him. Recently noted atheist and brilliant physicist Stephen Hawking died. This is how he expressed his end-of-life views. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken-down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. Now, while I certainly respect and admire his work as a physicist, I do not share his bleak appraisal of life's conclusion. I am not afraid of the dark because I know the light of the world is still alive. I do agree with one of Hawking's observations. He wisely said this, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. For me, the, Ill, the, the resurrection is no illusion. It is the most logical explanation for the empty tomb. It holds the greatest promise and hope for the future. It is the miracle of miracles. I looked ahead. April Fool's Day won't fall again on Easter for another 11 years. 2029 will be the next time. I have no idea what the next 11 years will bring. A lot can change in a decade plus, but if Jesus Christ can conquer death, then he can handle anything I face in the days ahead, and you too. And we'd all be fools not to trust him. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. 
Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.